And now join me by taking your copy of God's Word and uh, turning to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Uh, Those of you who know me may probably know that punctuality is one of my great concerns in life. Uh, I am incapable of showing up to a party fashionably late. Uh, Normally, I am awkwardly early. Uh, But I believe that to be on time is to be late, and to be early is to be on time. So it is fitting in God's providence, certainly not in my choosing and uh, and my scheduling, that we are at Palm Sunday a week early. Uh, We're this week today reading uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, reading of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Uh, And so we will read today in verses 28, and we're going to end our reading and our study today in verse 40, and come back, Lord willing, next week to see Jesus actually stepping into Jerusalem and into the temple uh, and weeping over the city. But today, verses 28 through 40, you can find that beginning at the bottom of page 878 of most English Standard Versions. Today, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And before we come to read this word together, let us join our hearts again in prayer and seek God's blessing upon our reading and study. Let's pray. Gracious Lord our God, this is your word and we are your people. So we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe the word of Christ that is before us. Cause us, O Lord, to receive your implanted word with meekness, to find life by hearing, by the message of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do this and grow us in your grace. By the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King, who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. According to most sources, uh, the procession began before the hours of early dawn. Before the first rays of sunlight brightened the horizon already, uh, the crowds began gathering on a rounded hill just about two miles outside the capital city. Crowds of travelers, 
participants and, and witnesses began flocking around the man at the center. And then as the parade snaked its way down the hill toward the city, worshipers stretched behind and before. They were shouting hymns of joy. They were recalling the powerful works they had seen on display. And nearer to the gates, others joined in. The city came alive and peasant children threw branches in the way of the arriving procession. Inside, the caravan marched toward the temple. They went up to the marble pillars and columns, to the place where honors would be conferred and the gods would be appeased, and the conquering general at the center of the commotion was to be known for the rest of his life as the Vir Triumphalis, the man of triumph. I am describing, of course, the Roman civic ceremony known simply as the Triumph. It was a military victory parade. According to one scholar in the years between the founding of Rome in 27 BC and the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, some 320 such parades were held into Rome. It was a public spectacle designed to impress the citizens of the city with the divinely unstoppable power of Dea Roma, the goddess Rome. The parades varied often in length and and varied in extravagance, but there were some features that were common to all of them. Every one of these parades began with a very long string of recently enslaved peoples from foreign lands brought back to serve the Roman Empire. And after them, condemned kings and tribal leaders shuffling along in their chains to the place where they would soon be executed. After them, banners and recitals of all the victories and the battles that were won, and then wagon after wagon after wagon after wagon of the spoils of war. But the real focus of the triumph was the general. He entered Rome clothed in gold and in purple. He came in with his soldiers singing lewd songs about his exploits, and he came with his face painted red as though he was Jupiter in the flesh descending upon the city. He came riding in a gilded chariot pulled by four white horses, the man of triumph. Well, the passage that I've just read in Luke, of course, is known to us as the triumphal entry. Jesus riding on a donkey. And after 2,000 years of church history, this is what triumph, this is what victory looks like to us, but probably not what it looked like to the people who first saw it especially not to Luke's Gentile audience, when they thought of victory, when they thought of a kingdom on display, when they thought of triumph, they thought of Rome. They thought of uh, the white horses, and the spoils of war, and all the trumpets, and the laurel wreaths, and the red-faced generals, and against that backdrop, Jesus must have seemed like a very, very different kind of king. That's the point. <laughs> the point is that Jesus is not a king like the kings of the earth. His kingdom is different. He does not rule over his people through the reputation of his ruthlessness. His kingdom doesn't come in an outward show of, of pomp and extravagance and marble and gold. Now Christ is the Lord who is lowly 
and humble. He's the Savior who gives himself for his subjects. He is the King who brings his peace to his people. Jesus is a different kind of king, and he brings in a different kind of kingdom. Today, I want to look with you at three unique aspects of Jesus' kingship. Luke shows us in this passage, first of all, the claim that Jesus makes as king, and secondly, the humility that he embodies, and finally, the praise he deserves. Those are our three points today. The claim Jesus makes, the humility he embodies, and the praise he deserves. As we consider Jesus' claim, we should probably begin by admitting that this is one of those passages. This is one of those passages that has become so familiar to us that, well, it ceased to take us by surprise, maybe in the way that it ought to. In some churches, many churches, this passage, or one of the other passages from the Gospels about the triumphal entry, is read once a year, every year, on Palm Sunday. That means it can become like the nativity, it can become like the resurrection. True and wonderful and glorious and powerful, but sometimes so much just a part of the landscape of our faith that it's easy to overlook what's actually happening here and just breeze on through it and not take notice of what we ought to see. And so perhaps we ought to begin by noticing just how uncharacteristic this all is from what we know about Jesus up to this point. Jesus has... Uh, spent his ministry so far making every reasonable effort to conduct his ministry in quietness and obscurity. It's hard to be obscure when you're raising the dead, but Jesus tried. He would often withdraw to the lonely places. He would tell those who received his miraculous works not to mention any of it to anyone. He sometimes sneaked away through a crowd of people who were trying to take him and make him king by force. He forbade Peter and the Twelve from telling anybody who he really was. In the Gospels, Jesus goes to such great lengths to stay out of the spotlight that modern scholars, you may be aware, write their books and and write their commentaries trying to crack the code of what has become known as the Messianic secret. That question of why is Jesus so hesitant to make himself known to the people he's come to deliver. This is not a new question. Uh, You remember in John's Gospel, in John chapter 7, verse 4, Jesus' own flesh and blood brothers are wrestling with that question, and they say to him, no one who works, (coughs) excuse me, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It was the puzzle that stumped everybody who knew him. Here is this wonderful prophet. Here is this wonderful messianic figure. And if only we could get him to reveal himself. But he won't. Jesus spends three years ministering and moving about and commanding silence from all the demons who knew his name. But now, Now outside Jerusalem at the time of the Passover amidst the the thronging thousands who are going up to the feast, Jesus sent two of his disciples to fetch an animal and to bring it to him. Jesus didn't need the donkey, right? Nowhere else in all the Gospels do we see Jesus riding on or in anything but a boat, sometimes to cross the Sea of Galilee, and even then sometimes he chose to walk instead. 
Jesus doesn't need the donkey. But suddenly a descent to the city and he needs a royal mount. It's just a small thing. But it's a big change because Jesus is drawing attention to himself. He is putting himself in the spotlight and saying, I want you to see me and I want you to know me and I want you to know what I am about. Last fall I went with uh, one of our members to meet with the director of a local ministry that Redeemer supports. And this local ministry for the period of the year leading up to that time had been relatively quiet, and relatively quiet on purpose. It was a, it was a planned restructuring, a, a rebranding maybe, if you will, the way that some uh, marketers might term it. It was an intentional time of quietness to rethink the entire organization and to get ready for a big launch in 2021. Maybe that's a helpful way to think about what Jesus is doing here. He isn't rebranding, but, but this is the launch. This is the moment in the spotlight. This is a calculated step into the limelight. After three years of relative quiet, Jesus is declaring who he is in a way that is to remove any doubt about what he's come to do. Jesus is drawing attention to himself, and he's doing it to make the unmistakable claim that he is the king of Israel. And so, he sends his disciples to gather a colt, and he says, if anyone asks you, what are you doing? Tell them the Lord needs it. That's what kings do. Israel didn't have a constitution. They didn't have a fourth amendment that protected the populace from the unlawful seizure of their property. In those days, if the king wanted your donkey, the king used your donkey. It was already his anyway. Everything in the kingdom belonged to the king. And so he doesn't send his disciples, go into that village over there, and I don't know, ask nicely, see if anybody has something they could borrow. I'll pay the regular hourly rate. We'll have it back by sunset. No, go get a donkey. And if anybody says, what are you doing? Say, the king needs it. He sends them to flex the monarchical muscle to gather what the king needs for his entrance into Jerusalem. He's revealing himself as the king of Israel. He's revealing himself as the king of creation. All the cattle on a thousand hills are his. All the donkeys in a thousand villages belong to him. And if anyone says, what do you think you're doing? Simply tell them the Lord needs it. Now, uh, for those of you who are wondering, and maybe some of you are wondering, the answer is no. No, this was not something that Jesus prearranged. He hadn't been in, in uh, this village the last time and told them, when I come back, I'm going to need a donkey. It's got to be here. I'll send these people. This is the password. This is how you'll know. That's not what Luke wants us to see in this passage. Luke wants us to see Christ's divine omniscience. Jesus is the one who knows what his opponents mutter and grumble about him in the secrecy of their hearts. Jesus knows how many men have married and divorced that Samaritan woman he met at the well outside of the city. And he who knows that also knows where to find the cult to fulfill the ancient prophecy. Zechariah 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. Having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So when Jesus descends to Jerusalem 
on the back of a beast of burden, he knows what he's doing. He's making a claim. He is declaring himself king of Israel. Maybe more importantly, he is showing that his kingship demands a decision. Here he comes. And what will we think of him? Will we receive him as the king that we've been waiting for, or will we see him as another obstacle in the way of our own personal autonomy, our own human aspirations? Will we respond to him as the king? Will we submit ourselves to the demands of the king, or we will, deny, will we deny the claim he makes on our life? He still forces that same decision today. And he can, because he's the king. It all belongs to him already. This is the claim that he is making. Now, once we've seen the claim Jesus is making, we also have to see his humility. And this is important because a claim to kingship is, is just like every other king who's ever been. This is what makes Jesus like every other king, his claim to authority. But what makes him different from all the other kings is his humility. And practically every detail in this passage is putting humility on display. There is, of course, the, the humility of the animal that he chose. And even from our pop cultural understanding, we have this sort of uh, instinctive sense that donkeys are lowly creatures. We imagine almost a hierarchy of the horse family, right? There are stallions, and they're way up here because they are noble. And then there are mules, and at least they're strong. But then there are donkeys, and they're stubborn, and they're ridiculous. And nobody who wants to impress anybody would choose to ride on the back of Eeyore when you could ride on Black Beauty. Everything in our pop culture and all of the arts and, and everything around us, we understand the lowly creature that is the donkey. Well, but the humility Zechariah has in mind, when he says that your king is humble and mounted on a donkey, it doesn't actually have much to do with how a donkey looks, really, it has to do with what a donkey does. Consider again Zechariah chapter 9, but consider not just verse 9, but also verse 10 that comes immediately after it, obviously. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. You see that contrast. It's a matter of function. The difference between a donkey and a war horse in Israel was the difference between a John Deere and a Humvee. One is an agricultural implement, the other is a weapon. And so this animal becomes a symbol that Jesus' kingdom is different from all that came before it. It's humble and gentle and peaceful. For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And there's a humility in this lowly beast that Christ has chosen. There's also a humility in the crowd that accompanies him. In Luke's account, the disciples are the ones who take the initiative once uh, the animal is brought to Jesus. Read it again, verse 35. 
they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. The disciples are involved now. They're the ones who are doing. And all of it sounds like a sort of working man's attempt at a red carpet welcome. Jesus knew what was going on. Jesus had planned the declaration he was going to make, but the rest of it reads like everybody else is joining in last minute and just sort of contributing whatever they had at hand. Nobody had a real saddle, so we've got some coats, a couple coarse coats that belong to fishermen. Put it on the donkey. Put, put Jesus on that. They didn't have any wreaths and flowers and laurel branches, so they cut down the palm branches right by the side of the road, and they, and they threw them before Jesus as a sort of welcome. This is, at the same time, a joyous occasion and a cobbled-together ceremony. It is a royal welcome that's equivalent to a potluck luncheon. Here's how John Calvin puts it. He says, he is attended by a large crowd, yes, but a large crowd of those hastily assembled from the neighboring, neighboring villages. As sounds of loud and joyful welcome are heard, yes, but from the very poorest from those who belong to the despised multitude, and watching the despised excuse me, watching the spectacle, Calvin says, one might think that Jesus intentionally exposed himself to the ridicule of all. There's a humility about the whole thing, a sort of humble peasantry as to what we see going on here. Here is Jesus going into the city, proclaiming himself as king, and he's surrounded by all these people who are just trying not to make a muddle of the whole thing. But the real, the final humility comes not just in how Jesus entered or what he rode or even the people who were with him. The humility comes in those who receive, refused to receive Jesus as king. Excuse me. Don't forget that in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, this, like every other traditional culture, was a culture built on very deeply entrenched ideals about honor and shame. And you can catch a flavor for it. Every, every time in Luke's gospel, and it's happened several times, every time uh, the Pharisees grumbled and muttered about the people that Jesus ate dinner with. He's gone to be with those sinners, with those tax collectors, because according to their social norms, there were actually some people that ought to be ignored. On the other hand, there were important people, impressive people, who no one dared to disrespect. There were rabbis, and there were synagogue leaders, and there were elders in the community. And any time an extraordinary visitor came into a village, there were strictly prescribed ceremonies to give them the honor they were due in that culture. It wasn't a guessing game. It wasn't, a, I don't know, how do we want to do it today? There were, there were uh, patterns that were developed over time, and scholars have picked these things out, and they, they tell us that when rulers and dignitaries entered a city, they were always welcomed outside the gates by all the political elite. They were met outside and ushered in. They were brought in. And the citizens would dress up for the occasion. And then there were speeches that were given. There were honors that were announced. And, and the, the guest of honor was presented to the city. It was all sort of a bit of pageantry going on there. And from every measure of first century decorum, Jesus should have been greeted halfway into Jerusalem. He should have been hailed by the priests and the members of the Sanhedrin. He should have been showered with praise. He should have been invited to dinner at the most important home in Jerusalem, but there's none of it. 
No trumpets. No handshakes, no bows, not a single mazel tov from the temple. Crowds of disciples rejoiced outside, and everybody who was anybody in Jerusalem ignored it. It was a shameful and shocking rejection. But it was not unexpected. And Jesus came in in exactly the way he told us he was going to come in, in exactly the way he, he first told us back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, when he told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by all the important people, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He must be rejected and killed and on the third day be raised. And every last bit of it, every detail is a reminder that our King Jesus is not like the kings of the world. Our king is gentle and lowly, the model of perfect humility. He's not afraid to associate with his people in humble circumstances. He's content to be the guest of a home or a heart or a family that has little of what the world sees as impressive. It's all a reminder that our king knows what it is to suffer rejection. He knows what it is to be mistreated and to be abused and to be overlooked and to be ignored. Our king is a king who's humble enough to sympathize with our weaknesses because he knows what it is to suffer. He is not ashamed of his people when they suffer. When they suffer at the hands of others, when they suffer at, at the ravages of their body, when they grow old and weak, and when their strength is gone, when they come to the end of themselves, our king is not ashamed of his humble people. He knows what it is to suffer alongside of us and to suffer for us. And above all, it's a reminder that our king is humble enough to make himself a sacrifice for sinners. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In fact, they rejected him. They rejected him, and they crushed him, and they considered him cursed by God. And even though he knew it was coming, Jesus rode into Jerusalem anyway. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, he came in like a lion with velveted paws. He came in like a lamb led silently to slaughter. He came in like a king who conquers by laying down his life. And that's the king humble and gentle, who is worthy of all our praise. We've seen the claim that Jesus makes. We've seen the humility that he embodies. And finally, in Luke's passage here, the praise that Jesus deserves. On the way down the mountain, uh, Jesus' disciples begin to rejoice and to praise God, saying, verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. It's the detail that finally, at this point in Luke's gospel, finally makes sense. It feels right. Because even though Jesus spent those three years trying to keep his ministry quiet, word had gotten out. 
You're healing uh, lepers by, by the tens, and, and you're, you're raising up the dead, and you are casting out demons, and you're preaching messages everywhere that attract a crowd, and word has gotten out, and messianic expectations among his followers was at a fever pitch. We learned last week, verse 11, that as Jesus was headed up to Jerusalem, all the crowds supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. It was like when you go uh, to buy birthday balloons at the dollar store. And you know that these are not the high quality ones, and there's a pretty good chance that about half of the balloons are going to pop if you put just the slightest bit too much air into them. And so you begin to blow them up, you put them to your lips, and the whole time you're bracing for impact because just any minute you expect it to go. Well, lots of Jesus' followers were waiting for that thin layer of silence to burst around Jesus' ministry. Their lungs were filled and ready with praise, just waiting for the moment that they could get it out. Waiting for the moment they could shout the coming of his kingdom and power and glory. And when they saw Jesus sitting on the back of that donkey, they couldn't hold it in anymore. This is what they had been waiting for. The wait for the kingdom was finally over. Three years they waited. While he went around Galilee and Judea and even over into some of the territory of the Gentiles. 400 years they had waited since the appearance of the last prophet. A thousand years they had waited since God said there would be a king to sit on the throne of David forever. 1,800 years they'd been waiting since Jacob said that the scepter would not depart from Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. They'd waited for so long, but finally it seemed like it was all coming true. And as he descended, they all burst forth with a loud voice, Blessed is the King. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. It was the right shout for that occasion. It was a quotation, slightly altered, a quotation from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the last in a collection of Passover psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel. They were the songs that all Jews sang during the time of the Passover. Quite uh, possibly, Psalm 118 is the last hymn that Jesus sang with his disciples in the upper room before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was on the minds, it was on the lips of all the Jews in and around Jerusalem this week. In Psalm 118, verses 26 and 27 read, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. But after the events of that morning, there was a slight change to the text. Blessed is he became blessed is the king. And the people went up convinced that this Passover, just like the first one in Egypt so many hundreds of years ago, this Passover was the beginning of a new era for God's people. A new age of power and freedom and communion with the Lord God Almighty. Sometimes we find in Scripture that the people who speak speak a deeper truth than they understand at the time. And so it was for this crowd as they sang, Blessed is the King. 
Because the prophet in their midst was the king. The king in their midst was the festal sacrifice. This royal figure was the Passover lamb who was sent to bring peace not only on earth, but between man and God in the highest heavens. And John's gospel tells us that the disciples didn't understand the triumphal entry until after the resurrection. It wasn't until they saw him raised that they could put it together and say, what was Jesus doing? What kind of kingdom was he bringing? Nevertheless, they sang his praises. They praised the one who brings peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. And just like you expect from the one uh, who is deserving of all glory, laud, and honor, what does Jesus do? You know, you read in, in Revelation, when John falls at the feet of the angel, and the angel says, whoa, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship the Lord. All glory, praise, and honor. And what does Jesus do? He receives it. He refuses to stifle the disciples. He refuses to silence them. He refuses to rebuke them, even though the Pharisees are worried about blasphemy or they're worried about a Roman reaction or they're worried about some other thing that might happen because human lips dared to thank God for sending a Savior into the world. Jesus receives their praise. He had to. He cannot not receive the praise. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, there is a cosmic impossibility of denying the glory that is due to this king. It can't not happen. The king is ascending his throne. The lamb is approaching the altar. Who of all flesh can deny him his praise? Will you? That's the note that this passage ends on, you realize. He must be praised. He's deserving of praise. The Lord of glory goes up to lay down his life, and no, he's not a king like the kings of the earth. He's a king who brings his peace to his people, but his kingship demands a response just the same. Will you receive him, or will you reject him? Will you rejoice in his royal humility or will you be silent, hardened, granite reinforced? Oh, may the Lord give us grace to receive him and to rejoice in him and to praise his glorious name. Let's pray. O oh, righteous and glorious Lord, we thank you for your King. We thank you for the Savior sent into the world to redeem a people unto yourself, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We thank you for the promises of the gospel made true in Jesus Christ. We thank you, O oh Lord, for drawing us to yourself with cords of love, causing us to see and believe in our Savior. O oh Lord, we long for that day when the kingdom will come in its fullness, and we will stand with you. We gathered around the throne to sing praises forever. Even so, O oh Lord, begin it now in our hearts. Begin it now in our lives that we would be people of praise and worship to the King. 
pray in his name. Amen.